Yeah, I see some of you wanted to applaud that. Go ahead and applaud that. That was really good. <laughs> that was good stuff. Uh, Kelly warned me in advance that we would be doing as many hallelujahs as we possibly could squeeze in this morning and that this was in uh, concert with something that the kids are doing um, this uh, season and that's very, very helpful in getting us ready for Lent as well. That's a good, I didn't count them. I think that there must be, including the ones with the holly, 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 we're well over 50 already and so we'll, we'll probably make our quota. I was very happy to respond to Kelly's invitation to come over while she takes some time off. And um, you're aware that she's uh, decided she needs to take a bunch of time off after uh, this, this year in order to restart um, her engines and to look at what's happening with her life. And I, I applaud her for doing that. I think an awful lot of pastors just slug it out and decide not to do that, and it's to the detriment of the congregations that they serve. And so she's doing you a big favor by doing this. Unfortunately, um, she will not be returning here, but that, that's, uh, uh, that's to be decided in the future. I know that you're going to do a Shrove Tuesday, was it a dinner? A dinner, something like that. Yes. When I was... Uh, at the church in Sunnyvale, I suggested that we do a Shrove Tuesday dinner. They had never had one before. I said, let's do it the way they do it in Pennsylvania Dutch country. I'm from just a little bit north of there originally. And there was a little Lutheran church in the next town who always had a big chicken and waffle supper on Shrove Tuesday. This is not your typical southern chicken and waffle supper that's sweet. This is waffles made without sugar and chicken covered with gravy. That's the way the Pennsylvania Dutch do it. And you go along, to go along with this, you also have um, pepper cabbage, which is uh, kind of uh, sweet, kind of sour, sweet and sour beans, and then usually um, shoe fly pie for dessert. So it's, uh, it uses up the fat, like you're supposed to do on Fat Tuesday. Okay, all of that is by preparation, and we're coming into a season of a bunch of celebrations today, of course, being Super Bowl Sunday, and that's in, right in our backyard. You've been bombarded with all the information all week long. About a week ago, no, not a week ago, about a year ago, my son declared to me that he was no longer supporting football. Now, he teaches in a college where they have a football team, and you're supposed to be big supporters of the football team. And he was a supporter of football, and I am, and I've held Super Bowl parties and all that kind of stuff. But the mounting evidence shows that there is so much possible damage to the players, even the ones that are not reported, that it's raising some major questions, in fact, including in this morning's uh, B. There's an article about that that you might want to pay attention to. And then... Next Sunday is Valentine's Day. So we got an awful lot of stuff to gear up for. In the meantime, we're going to have a sermon. Okay. What about women in the church? Seems like an odd thing to ask, especially in Davis. Jerry Brown, our governor, reads Jean-Pierre Dupuis, 
And according to this week's news, Dupuis is the writer some have called a modern doomsayer. Reading Dupuis informs the governor's firm resolve to call us to do everything we can to save our planet. That's why you keep hearing these kinds of environmental concerns from Jerry and have been for years. Barack Obama has been reading the fiction of Jonathan Franzen lately, whose most recent novel, Purity, delves into the relative merits of whistleblowers like Edward Snowden, whom uh, Barack Obama does not particularly care for, but he's willing to look at some other aspects of that. And he's famous for releasing government files on what information federal government collects on its citizens. And so Barack Obama is taking a second look at that. These past few weeks, we've seen that Donald Trump reads although I think that the purpose behind reading what he calls two Corinthians may be a little more self-serving than the others. Incidentally, his use of the Corinthian Pauline letter is commonly called proof texting or going to the Bible to find what you're looking for. That's not a good way to approach Bible reading, especially the Gospels especially Paul, the writer of this morning's scripture. Well, why is any of this reading important? Because it gives us a window into how these already mentioned important people and others like them think, and how therefore they're likely to try to impact culture in their very, very public time at bat. That's a key to what voting is all about especially in our day, and why we need to pay attention so that our own vote is as solid a choice as we can make it. Okay, people read. Most people read. You do, I do. In order to entertain, to distract, but also to learn more about our fast-changing world and how to live in it. Some of us read scripture for those reasons, too. Paul reads. Paul's a scholar. Paul's a teacher. He's studied with the very best. He knows how to speak and write rhetoric. He knows how to use the complicated intricacies of argument of his day. And he has been convinced that God has called him to proclaim a universal humanity loved by God, just like God announced his love for the people called Israel, who were later called Judah and Israel, and who were still later called the Jews by Paul's time. Paul shows how this universally loved by God humanity happens by means of employing a deep, thorough trust in God like Abraham's trust in God. You know the story. Abraham worshipped the gods of his fathers. He lived in Ur beyond the Chaldees, wherever that is in the Middle East. And suddenly out of the blue comes this voice or indication or appearance or what have you calling Abraham to worship Yahweh, whom no one had heard of, and to go with him to a land that he was going to give him. 
a land that Abraham probably didn't even know existed. And Abraham decides to do it. He gathers up his family and his clan and all of the supplies that they'll need and the horses and cattle and camels and whatever and sheep and moves out following a brand new God in those parts whom no one had known. He puts his whole trust in that God. Pretty bold stuff. The result of that trust, or faith of Abraham, as we call it, is that God makes Abraham the father of the people chosen to receive God's blessings and chosen also to spread those blessings throughout the whole world. But Paul hastens to remind us that Abraham originally was a member of the nations, the idol worshipers, the Gentiles, as they are softly referred to. If, as Paul propounds, someone were to come along and accomplish this same Abrahamic total trust in God, even to death, then the miracle of chosenness would then be available for all the rest of us Gentiles, you and me as well as to the Jews. Paul contends that Jesus does exactly that and that the crucified Jesus and his total trust of God brings the whole world's inclusion into the people of God, the chosen of God, the beloved of God. Jesus Christ's faith, or total trust, if you want to use the term, in God accomplishes this. We then, you and I, are all children of Abraham, full heirs of the promise of God's love and care through what Jesus the Christ has done. Okay, and now I know that's quite a lot of theological digest. Perhaps you may not have heard this phenomenon spoken of in quite this way before, and I assure you, really, it is a huge notion and it affects in maybe a different way what we have traditionally believed in Christendom, particularly the Protestant branch of it. But I'm convinced that you will hear it some more, perhaps a lot more in your lifetime. Just if it goes like this, it is not our faith in Christ Jesus, but our participating in the faith of Christ Jesus, which Paul announces and insists on. That's important. But, and unfortunately, it's not our purpose to explore this exhaustively right now. I bring it up because it is the basis for what the rest of the sermon is about. Faith of Jesus Christ rather than faith in Jesus Christ bears some careful study and prayerful thought on the part of all of us. All right, that's the background assumption. Now, what about women in church? Oh, yes, I am going to get to the subject. Okay. Back in 1970, a woman in North Sacramento UMC, where I was serving at the time, proposed that the congregation set up a local committee on the status and role of women. Now, the annual conference had done this about the same time. Maybe you had a group here, too, that did that. 
So we set one up. Its unfolding work opened the eyes of a number of people, including me, about how women had been regarded and understood that was clearly wrong, and it opened the way to create new stuff that benefited not only women, but everyone else as a result. Great. Also, back in the 70s, actually 1972, when General Conference was held in Portland, by the way, it's being held in Portland again this year, we saw the first visible attempts to do similar things with the LGBTQ communities and individuals. Now, admittedly, admittedly, they were not called that then, and there was placed at the convention site a staffed information booth about it. But even to approach that booth to look for information drew disdainful stares and even negative comments from others who witnessed your attempt to do so, trying to discourage you. I know I was there. I approached the booth myself. Both of these historic beginnings happened almost 50 years ago. Today, church after church proclaims all means all. There's a version of that in the bulletin today in ways which affirm those beginnings. Well, obviously we still have much work to do as the saying goes. For example, I think all means all includes every means every. Not only group identity needs affirmation, but also individuals need affirmation. We need to include in the fellowship individuals in ways that each one of us can feel supported by. When someone moves into our sanctuary of a Christian church, there must be a sense of inclusion from that congregation so that we all can learn and practice ways of esteem and love for each other. It has to be there. Again, putting it another way, everyone no matter how different, as long as the aim of love and esteem is there, is welcome to worship, to study, to pray, to engage in mission. All. The focus on the total, the sum, the vast conclusion, inclusion. Every. The focus on the individual the differences celebrated, the variety that each one of us brings as loved and treasured by the God we celebrate when we gather. We see signs, tokens of inclusion today, and they're growing. Whether it's the recent Black Lives Matter that you see on billboards and placards in parades where people get a little angry, or or even at innocent little addition of a rainbow on the name tag of a hospital worker, which I noticed and commented on a few days ago. I'm experiencing inclusion development myself as I observe and participate increasingly in the suicide prevention walks where walkers wear differently colored bead necklaces denoting particular relationships to loved ones who have committed suicide. 
we are especially determined to commit to ending the heartache, not only of those depressed so much as to take their own life, but also the great pain of those who have been left behind, and very importantly, those who would blame the victim by calling them weak. The tragedy is preventable, and an inclusive, well-informed church where all feel cared for and loved and valued would help immensely with this. So, what about women in church? Sounds quaint now, doesn't it? But the work which began really long before the 1970s has broadened our understanding of what inclusiveness entails, hasn't it? And that has spread in all directions, and we learn more and more about what that has to be. Some more thoughts on this. Paul is in favor of inclusiveness, equality. Name a category of people in Paul's day. He includes it, you've heard some of it already. Male, female, slave-free, Gentiles, Jews, circumcised, uncircumcised, old identity, new identity, minor, adult, dominated, liberated, and more. And it's safe to say Paul probably would extend the list to today's newer divisions as well. All right. All right. But what about Paul's famous anti-woman stance? How does all this inclusiveness square with that? You recall the phrase. Women are to keep silent in the churches. I'm sure you've heard it. It's not Paul. It's not Paul. It's in addition to Paul's letter from the second century, most scholars now contend, and the prohibition certainly stands in stark opposition to what Paul is always passionate about in all of his other letters, the inclusion aspect. So then, all means all is not just a recent slogan, is it? Rather, it's the center of how Paul interprets what God wants, both for us and from us. And he takes his understanding and contention all the way back to Father Abraham in order to convince us of it. All means all is what Jesus was about, what he taught in the parables and aphorisms despite how later writers distorted what Jesus said and did. And some of these later writers were authors found in the New Testament itself. Okay, that's it. I've belabored the idea enough. You get the idea. What's the take-home on this? Live as though you are God's child, determined to spread love, the more as you learn by experience how God's love operates. Live as though you're God's child, because you are. Treat all others 
as though they are God's child, because they are as well. So whether we're talking about women in the church, LGBTQ, race, religious differences, finally I guess the question implied by the sermon title comes down to this. Does church even exist at all if some of God's children, any of God's children, are excluded from it? Amen.